My name is Nathan Stoltzfus, and my wife and I uh, help to lead a life group that meets on Mondays. For our scripture reading today, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 9, and it reads as follows. Do your best to come to me soon, for Damas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him, of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and all the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come to me before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. All right. So if you're here for the first time today, we have been working through one of Paul's, what they call pastoral letters. It's in 2 Timothy. And today's the last, uh, uh, last message in this series. Uh, if you want to use the Bible there in front of you, it's page 996 or 997. Pastor Nick gave a great message last week called Begin With the End in Mind. And in that, we begin to get a biographical sketch, a glimpse of Paul, the Apostle Paul's heart. His life and ministry is coming to an end, and he can sense it. And yet he feels an overwhelming satisfaction and gratitude with his life. He can look over his life and can honestly say, I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. I have fought the good fight. That the end is near is one reason he's focused on passing the baton to Timothy. And with this passing come all the admonitions to guard this gospel treasure as the Christian movement by all accounts is barely on life support. There are questions that Paul has answered thus far in this letter to Timothy. What kind of faith is worth having? What kind of faith should be guarded? What kind of faith is worth passing on? But this faith in Jesus 
Is it a faith that we can hold on to as our life comes to an end? What if it is all we have? Well, that's the final question that Paul answers. And in our text this week, we will experience the unwavering affirmation that the same faith in Jesus that empowers me to live empowers me to die. Many people don't die well. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever wondered why is that? I was really intrigued by an article I found from a hospice doctor named Karen Wyatt. And she wrote about this drawing from her direct experience and she listed six or seven different factors on why people don't die well. Let me share just a few of these. One, she cites, is they haven't thought about the end of life. And to this, she adds, we live in a society where death is still a taboo subject. Many people go through life without consciously considering the fact that they will die one day and are shocked when they receive the news that death is approaching. Here's another reason. They have been unhappy all their lives. She explains, there is a saying in hospice that people die the way they lived. I have observed that patients who have held on to bitterness and disappointment about life tend to be unhappy during the dying process as well. Since they have never learned how to be at peace with the circumstances of life, when death is near, they remain angry and inconsolable. Woody Allen wrote for the movie Annie Hall that life is, quote, full of loneliness and misery and suffering and unhappiness, and it's all over too much, all over much too quickly. This epitomizes the attitude of the unhappy patient at the end of life who hated every moment of being alive, but is now furious that it's coming to an end. Thirdly, she says, they are holding on to regrets and resentments. Describing this, she writes, many of my dying patients have been ravaged by feelings of guilt and remorse over events of the past. They either have a deep need to make amends for some previous action of their own, or they have been burning inside with resentment toward another person. Those who have not found their way to forgiveness have remained in this painful state of guilt and blame until their last breath. And fourthly, they feel, this is really interesting. I, the other three I had some resonance with, but this was really different. They feel entitled to a different outcome. As a close observer, she helps us understand what this means, writing, some of my patients have been angry about the fact that they were dying because they spent much of their lives doing the things they believed would prevent them from dying. They devoted themselves to a restrictive diet or an intense workout plan or even strict religious practices in order to live the right way and avoid something bad from happening to them when they audibly had to face the fact that they were going to die anyway, they felt cheated and betrayed. They had fallen for a false belief that their healthy habits would somehow entitle them to avoid death. 
These are some of the reasons people don't die well, don't die with peace. And so the question that begs for an answer from today's text is, does faith in Jesus hold us to the end? We're going to answer that question, but it's going to be a little bit of a long and winding road to get there. So stick with me, because we're going to have to sink our teeth into pieces of Paul's story. So to do that, we're going to break it down in these four ways. The need, the abandonment, the unstoppable mission, and the intimacy. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, there are likely some here this morning who came here um, with that thought that talking about death is a taboo subject. And I thank you, Father, that as followers of Christ, we can talk and think about everything, even the things that are hard. And so I ask you, Father, this morning that you would help me and my friends gathered here this morning this community of faith to learn what it looks like to live well and what it looks like to die well, to have a faith that will hold us to the end. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Okay, you ready? Here we go. First, the need. As godly and as mature as Paul is, he is still an ordinary man with human needs. He is not a superhero. He asked for a cloak, which is a coat, because winter is coming and the Roman cell that he calls home is cold. It's not super spiritual to freeze if one does not have to. I once spent a night in a mountainous retreat in China in an unheated room as temperatures dipped close to freezing. I was wrapped up like a burrito in a single blanket and sheet with all my clothes on. The next day, I did not punish myself for enjoying the warm bed and the long hot shower the next day, which happened to be a, at a Holiday Inn Express. <laughs> now, besides anticipating the cold, Perhaps Paul was bored or restless. He asked for his scrolls, likely Old Testament scriptures, and parchments, something for him to write on. Even at this age of his life, he had written scripture. He had studied the Old Testament scriptures. He was still hungry to learn them. And he still wanted to write to others to love and to bless them. Finally, he was lonely. Notice two times he tells Timothy, don't delay in coming. And we see a hint of vulnerability when he says to him, come quickly and come before winter. Timothy received this letter in Ephesus in modern day Turkey. Ephesus to Rome was no easy trip and Timothy would have to make a careful detailed plan. This was no small ask on Paul's part. Paul tasted loneliness. This passage is seeping with it. 
And it came at a particularly vulnerable moment of his life, a time when the imagination of a sword held over his head by a Roman executioner must have gripped him. He had tasted heartbreak. Demas, a friend and co-worker, felt the reign of terror around his own neck and deserted him. Earlier in the letter, born out of heartbreak like this one, Paul appealed to Timothy, don't be afraid to suffer for the gospel. Well, what do we learn here about Paul? Now, it's a modern phrase, but not new to human nature. Paul is self-aware. He recognizes his situation, his needs. It's striking. The mighty apostle is not afraid to ask for help. He is willing to allow others to serve him. And there is something about Timothy's presence. He's like a son. Uh, the, the depth of their relationship will bring him comfort. A lot of us have trouble being vulnerable enough to ask for help. I learned how deeply this can become ingrained in us through observing my parents. In their last decade, even with great needs, after having been so self-sufficient their entire lives, it was hard for them to ask for help until it became a crisis. Now I get it. I saw the pain and how excruciating it was to feel like you are now a burden to others when you have taken care of others your entire life. But Paul knows how relationships work. Paul did not grow up in our culture permeated by individualism. Paul grew up in a culture that very much understood community and family and mutual dependence and interdependence. It's especially tempting for leaders, including pastors, parents, caretakers, those who are intensely involved with people like doctors, nurses, and teachers, to get into such a groove of people needing you that you cannot turn around and ask for help when you need it. And that's not a healthy place. It's not sustainable. It's not healthy to assume you must continually remain in a posture of strength. And if we do, if that becomes your identity, you cut yourself off from being able to receive love. Because receiving from love involves receiving love from others, pardon me, involves being vulnerable. The Apostle Paul, aware of his own weakness, did not do that. Okay, let's go to our second point. We're going to stay in this vein a little bit, but let's go to our second point. There is the need and then there is the abandonment. It's one thing to be alone, right? It's another thing to be abandoned. Many of you have felt the pain of abandonment. Let these words sink in. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. You see, because Paul was a Roman citizen, in this court, he had the right to call witnesses on his behalf. But as one commentator put it, among all Christians in Rome, 
There is not one who would stand at his side in court, either to speak on his behalf or to advise him in the conduct of his case or to support him by a demonstration of sympathy. Now, it's very possible that this individual named Alexander was the very person that brought charges against Paul. What were those charges? We're not told. But we do know what Christians in this era were accused of, including, ironically, atheism, because they rejected the old gods, as well as emperor worship. They were accused of cannibalism because there was talk about them eating Christ's body in communion. And they were accused of sedition because they endangered the Pax Romana or the peace of Rome because they refused to participate in ritual sacrifices. Those sacrifices were important because they kept the gods on the Roman side during war. But we should note that Paul has not lived the Christian life alone. He's never been a lone ranger. There are over 100 people mentioned in his writings as people he knew or worked alongside of. But in this moment, abandoned, he feels the pain of loneliness. Now, there were some known friends in Rome. They're mentioned in verse 21. So he's not conveying he's utterly alone. But the expression of his need is for those whose friendship and affection he longed for most. They were gone by desertion or by assignment. You know, it's like those times when you're hurting and you just need that one person, right? You need that one person. You might be surrounded by a lot of people, but you need that one person. When my wife used to get sick early in her marriage, like I just couldn't do it. She wanted her mom, right? That's how it works. You know, if you've been doing what I've been doing for long enough, trying to help hurting people, at times, sometimes, someone will get bent sideways with you in seeking to help them. In their eyes, you become the problem. Or it might be that someone so vehemently disagrees with your message. And either way, they become, and they feel anger to such a degree that they actually begin to malign you to others. They make accusations about the church and in a less than gracious way. FYI, these are always opportunities to first look inside and see where you can grow and if you need to repent, if there are elements of truth in those accusations. But nonetheless, when those kinds of things have happened to me, I have had friends I could confide in who see the wider set of circumstances and have supported me. I mean, there's a lot of comfort in that. At this moment, Paul had none of that. He bored himself. And so we get a sketch here of what Paul was enduring. He is alone. He has tasted injustice. He senses death is near. The gospel movement is teetering on the edge. And in his relational capacity, as a man, a part of a missional community team, he is able to be vulnerable. I just hope you can take away this example. 
All right, let me spend a few more moments here, okay? It might feel like a rabbit trail to you, but by the end, you're going to see this ties into our overarching big idea. Friends, to be vulnerable is more than being open. I think there is a distinction. One cannot be vulnerable without being open. But one can be open without being vulnerable. What do I mean by that? You know, it's entirely possible for you to open up your life, giving others facts and details about your personal life. Maybe even include difficulties. But in your openness, you remain and stay in control. You are still managing how others perceive you. But to be vulnerable is more than that. To be vulnerable is to be aware of my needs and express those needs in the moment, in the actual experience of my weakness without seeking control of how others perceive me. Now, for independent, self-reliant, image-conscious people, that is never easy. But friends, it is a problem because not being vulnerable lacks integrity because it presents an image of ourselves that twists reality. Now, let me be open, hopefully vulnerable. <laughs> Throughout my life, I have often viewed myself as an open person. And yet, I must admit shamefully, and I, I admit shamefully, I've even taken a certain level of pride in it. Like being proud of one's humility. <laughs> How's that for an oxymoron? That sort of self-talk in me produced a measure of self-deception, thinking I am being open, yet in reality, I am closed up. Because I'm avoiding vulnerability. And what is the fruit of that? Well, no doubt the lack of vulnerability limits the closeness of intimacy that I can experience with others, with my wife, with my adult children, with my fellow pastors, with friends. It limits how emotionally accessible others perceive me to be as they aspire for deeper connection. Openness, friends, is not the same as vulnerability. And I am still learning and inviting others to be open and be open about my weakness in and my need in the moment that I'm experiencing it. Okay, how we doing? All right, I'm going to go a little deeper in this, okay? I want to talk to men for a little bit. I'm not alone in this. Vulnerability is a particular challenge for men. And among men, including Christian men, there is widespread loneliness. You Google this and you'll see this is become a, becoming a major national health crisis issue. Now, COVID certainly exacerbated social isolation. A recent article in The Atlantic was entitled, Why Americans Suddenly Stopped Hanging Out. The numbers are just incredible. They're unbelievable. 
And while this article is focused on teens, there are no doubt that these trends impact all of us, and especially men. Men are more cut off from each other than ever before. I mean, these trends of social isolation, remember the book in the 90s, Bowling Alone. We were already trending this way. We were, we were already stopped, you know, joining bowling leagues. We weren't joining uh, uh, community groups. We weren't joining political associations. We stopped attending churches much. This has gone, been going on for three decades before COVID. And if you look at the charts of this, it looked bad before COVID. Now our social isolation is pervasive. Men are cut off from each other. Many wives find their husbands emotionally inaccessible and without the ability to emotionally connect. And that's not usually a problem until difficulties hit. And that wife needs comfort and solace. Wives often know they are loved cognitively, but they don't feel it. Guys, this is a problem. This is a problem. Now, let me answer a few objections, guys, that might be cropping up. One, you might object to me using the example of Paul as one who is vulnerable. Don't we see him standing alone here in this passage, self-sufficient? Yes, we do. But this is an exception and a rare one. On Paul's journey, he was constantly with his companions, working in unity with others. If he was alone, it was only for a short duration. Guys, you might continue to object and say, sitting in a circle with a bunch of dudes, sharing my inner struggles and feelings is not going to get me closer to anybody. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make sport of not having my life all together. Well, I have two things to say to that. First, your analysis is not correct. In Alcoholics Anonymous, in AA meetings, for example, that take place all over the world, dudes are getting together to share their weakness and are finding meaningful friendships, community, and help to overcome drug or alcohol addiction. It is their recognition of a common weakness and their vulnerability that they cannot fight this on their own that makes their community so powerful. And secondly, guys, I am not suggesting for every guy that's sitting in a circle sharing your weaknesses is the only way to be vulnerable. When we talk about vulnerability, this is the image that comes to most guys' mind, and they immediately dismiss it. For most men, guys, hear me, this vulnerability will be shared in a natural context. It'll be shared in small bites, while working on some project together or taking a drive to a ball game. Actually, guys, the car is a good place for vulnerability because it means you don't have to look into each other's eyes. <laughs> and that's okay, guys, that's okay. Please hear what I'm saying. 
I am also not suggesting that vulnerability is the only thing that builds strong friendships among men. It is one thing, but there are many others. Guys need a common mission. Guys need to do worthwhile stuff together. Guys need shared experiences and shared adventures. I mean, there's being changed by God's word together. All of these, including vulnerability, guys, are part of the recipe for close friendships between men. Now, we didn't spend much time on this verse a few weeks ago, but it is so foundational. Earlier, Paul wrote this to Timothy, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Men and now women, you cannot run this race alone. Here's the big point. For your faith to carry you to the end, you need to team up with others who are running after Christ, and you need to do that today. You see, are you connecting the dots from all this relationship stuff to dying well? Dying well is absolutely tied into this level of relational satisfaction you have while you're now alive. I tell you, if you wait to the very end, it'll be too late. It'll be too late. All right. Now, we've gone down a bit of a rabbit trail, but I trust that the Spirit has taken us there. Let's go to the third point of our outline. You ready for the third point? I know I've already given you a ton to think about, but stay with me here. Unrelenting mission. What do I mean by that? Again, in our text, what we see here is evidence that Paul, even to the end, is unrelenting in his mission. He does not cave into self-pity. He does not close himself in and remain absorbed in his needs, as great as they are. He maintains a vision of who he is and the purpose of his life. I, I, man, friends, his example stirs me, and it convicts me. When I am going through a difficulty, I so easily lose my vision and close in my focus becoming, how do I end this thing and how do I get out of it? Look at verse 17. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Probably a reference to Nero. Now, the first thing we need to make a mental note of is that Paul was receiving God's strength. Just underline that word strength, but not in our Bible. <laughs> Paul was not moving forward just with gritty resolve. The absence of others, the absence of comforting touch, the absence of human back and forth made the presence of God all the more manifest to Paul. Was his statement, the Lord stood at my side, borne out only by faith? Or did Paul actually see God physically standing with him as he did in other visions? We don't know. But either way, the presence of God was felt and palpable to him. That presence, the promise 
I will never leave you or forsake you, gave him strength to stand alone. Now the Greek word for strength means inwardly strengthened and strength in soul and purpose. It's the same word used in Philippians 4.13 when Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or in Romans 4, when it says of Abraham that he grew strong in faith. In all these contexts, the strengthening comes in the absence of things that we would normally trust in or find our strength in, such as people or being physically capable to fulfill a function or having all we want materially. That strength kept Paul's vision alive so he could keep his focus on others. It strikes me that he had told Timothy to preach in season and out of season, preach in every circumstance, good or bad, and that's exactly what he himself is doing. And notice here again in verse 17, highlight this word in your mind. Notice that he says Gentiles, the Gentiles might hear it. Why did he say Gentiles? Is that significant? I think it is. Now keep in mind that this action of fully proclaiming the message is in the context of his defense. This mission opportunity happens in a Roman courtroom. But he does not say what we might expect him to say, that I proclaim the message to the judge, to the prosecutor, to my guards, to the jury, to the news reporters, and all the other people present. No, he says, I proclaim the gospel fully to the Gentiles. Why does that matter? Well, this really jumped out to me in my own study and inspired me to look into it more deeply. I think it matters because it tells us that Paul, at the end of his life, did not lose his assignment. He did not lose his assignment to preach the crucified and resurrected Jesus to the Gentile world. That had been his unique calling from the beginning. Paul was assigned to go to the Gentiles while the other apostles were to work amongst the Jewish world. And there seems to be something else in Paul's mind about this experience. The Greek word that we translate fully proclaimed carries with it the idea of being completed or fulfilled. You see something about this opportunity completed his work. It fulfilled his assignment. Therefore, he could see what we learned last week. I have finished the race. How could Paul say that this completed his assignment? I mean, he just, he's in one city, in one place. How could he say he completed his assignment? The answer might be in the nature of his trial and the location of his trial. Here is how one commentator put it. He wrote that it is quite possible that this event, which the apostle of the Gentiles regards as the completing act of his own mission and ministry, took place in the forum itself, meaning the, the very famous Roman forum. But at any rate, it would be held in a court to which the public had access, and the Roman public at that time was the most representative in the world. 
And in that representative city and before that representative audience, he preached Christ. And through those who were present and heard him, the fact would be made known throughout the civilized world that in the imperial city and before the imperial bench, the apostle of Christ had proclaimed the coming of his kingdom. At the end of his life, what dominated Paul's mind was, how will I finish the race? How will I fulfill this assignment? And he saw this last opportunity to give witness as being the completion of that. Paul was unrelenting in his mission up to the end. This, friends, is how faith in Jesus can carry you and me to the end of our lives, never losing a purpose to live. giving us a pathway forward. You know, in terms of serving Jesus, your last leg of the race might look a lot different, but we do never retire. There is always a reason to keep going. All right, let's go to the fourth point, our final point. We've gone through the need. We've gone through the abandonment. We've gone through an unrelenting mission. And now perhaps the most important is the intimacy, the closeness, the connection. Now, some of you are familiar with the details of Jesus' death and particularly his experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you are, then as Nathan read the passage, you recognize similarities in what Paul has written. For example, like Jesus, Paul had to face his agony alone. No one came to my support. Everyone deserted me. Compare those to the words Jesus said when he was arrested in Mark 14. Jesus said, am I leading a rebellion? That you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Another example, Paul is able to release and forgive, saying, may it not be held against them. Compare Paul's words to Jesus while being crucified, Luke 23. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Even Paul's truth-telling statement about how Alexander hurt him reveals forgiveness. How? Because it releases the hope for justice into the hands of God. When people seriously hurt one another and there are no attempts to amend, forgiveness is virtually impossible without the foundational belief that God will make it right. Paul's words mirror Jesus. In fact, it is very possible, and we might even go as far as to say likely, that the Apostle Paul, when writing this letter to Timothy, was reflecting on Psalm 22. Now, yes, what is the connection? Psalm 
22 is a messianic song, meaning that even though it was written by a human author, King David, a thousand years before Jesus, the words have a double meaning, meaning that David was writing about his own real-life experience of rejection and suffering, and yet those words mirror what will happen to Jesus in his crucifixion. And therefore, the words of Psalm 22 relate to and they predict the nature of the Messiah's suffering. And yet Jesus fulfilled these prophecies in a greater and more significant and more glorious way than David. Scholars have pointed out as many as nine different allusions from Psalm 22 throughout the fourth chapter of 2 Timothy, including being poured out like a drink offering and being rescued from the lion's mouth. Now, you can read Psalm 22 for yourself, and, and actually reading that will be helpful to you to prepare for Good Friday and for Easter. I'd encourage you to do it. What does all this mean? It means that Paul was thinking about Jesus in his final hours. And while there was an intimacy portended by the circumstances, the Lord stood with him, there was also an intimacy through the connection of suffering. Paul considered this suffering not as a source of self-righteousness in some kind of martyr complex, but he considered his suffering as a way of identifying with Jesus. It was an honor to suffer to him. He was counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. Sharing in suffering, as you know, it's true in many facets of life. Sharing in suffering creates incredible bonds of connection. And no doubt that intimacy comforted him and empowered him to let go of any bitterness that he may have been tempted to feel, whether it was Demas or whether it was Alexander. If my master could forgive in the midst of suffering, so can I. There is, however, and we'd be remiss if we didn't say this, there is, however, one great difference between Paul and Jesus. While Paul experienced the full presence and support of God the Father, Jesus, on the other hand, in the limitations of his humanity, while giving himself to the sacrificial act of mediating between God and humanity, in that act, he became in his very being, ontologically, in his being, he became the essence and the nature of sin. Sin was just not accidental to his being. He, though sinless, became sin. Human sin, all of it, was attributed to his spiritual account before the Father. He became burdened heavy, weighed down with all of humanity's spiritual debt. And thus he incurred, unlike Paul, 
he incurred the wrath of his father. Psalm 22, again, gives language to him in the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Paul did not have that same experience, that same sense of a torn relationship from his father. Again, there are agonies pictured in Psalm 22 that only Jesus the Messiah could fulfill literally. Authors Dan Allender and Tremper Longman capture this in their book, uh, Cry of the Soul. They write, Psalm 22 in particular gave voice to his pain and he fulfilled this psalm, Jesus fulfilled this psalm literally in more than one respect. His body and soul were torn apart, verse 14. His feet, hands and feet were pierced, verse 16. And his garments were divided by casting lots, verse 18. In his own path towards death, Paul found intimacy with Jesus. And so again, I return to the question that I asked you in the beginning. Did faith in Jesus hold up in the end? The faith that had helped him live, did it help him die? Faith in Jesus helped him address his death honestly and directly. It was not a taboo subject. Faith helped Paul die as he had lived. And he had lived with happiness and contentment and relational satisfaction and deep friendships as one who understood mutual interdependence and family and vulnerability. And he possessed to the end a purpose that kept his heart beating with a passion. As to bitterness and resentments, no bitterness hung around his neck like an ever-tightening noose. And entitled to a better outcome? No way! He knew all his life was about grace. He deserved nothing. Yet, he would spend eternity with Jesus in a new and unending kingdom. At the end of his life, like Abraham, instead of Abraham, he could die satisfied. And there was no wasting energy trying to hang on to this life, knowing it's but a shadow of the real thing. Can faith in Jesus carry you to the end? Can faith in Jesus carry you to the end? Does it teach us to die as well as to live? And the answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. This was the wonderful faith, the glorious faith that Paul was entrusting to Timothy and, and, and is entrusted to us today. First for us, first for us to savor and to delight in and then to guard, to preserve, and to pass on. Will you pray with me? Father, as we all reflect on these things, as we reflect on all the places your Spirit led us to be today, I trust, Father, that you'll take something from your words and cause it to just pierce through whatever veil 
lies over our hearts and the hearts of my friends. And that in this time now and in this place, we will offer a true spiritual sacrifice, our very lives and our very hearts in worship. Thank you that the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart, a sacrifice, Father, that you have promised that you will not reject and you will not despise. God, let us, in response to the beauty of your word, the power of your word, now give our hearts in worship, in response. With the authority and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.